0: You guys know, um, a Christmas story? The movie? I know it's not Christmas, but can I talk about it anyway? Um, I don't know. What's that? Oh, yeah. Good call. My wife is telling me, start your timer, because I always forget. There we go. Now we'll end before dinner. Uh, anyway, you know, (laughs) you know a Christmas story, right? Uh, the greatest Christmas movie of all time with the little kid and the you know, the, you'll shoot your eye out and everything. Well, anyway, there's a scene in A Christmas Story where, do you guys remember this? The Little Orphan, what is it, Little Orphan Annie, Dakota Ring? Am I the only one that's seen this movie? You guys are looking at me like you've never heard of this movie, right? No? I'm the only one? It's like the most famous Christmas movie. Anyway, they play it 24 hours, a, a, you know, on Christmas Eve on TBS. Anyway, so there's a scene where back in the day he would listen to this radio show, Little Orphan Annie. And at the end of the thing, she would give out like a message but the message was like coded and so you had to be part of the Little Orphan Annie uh, fan club or whatever and they would send you a little decoder ring and so the kid does it and he gets all excited he's checking the mail every day he finally gets his ring and then he goes you know I'm going to get a secret message and all this stuff he thinks it's going to be really important so he takes his little decoder ring and she's giving out the letters and it's like you know it's just a little simple code right so he turns it and you know E really means A and whatever and so he's writing it all down as it goes. You guys remember this? And it was the message, he was so excited, it was be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And then he gets real mad and he throws it away because it was just a commercial. Anyway, the, <laughs> the point of the illustration is, um, the, when we read the New Testament, a lot of times people come to the, the parts of the New Testament without uh, their little orphan Annie decoder rings to find out what's really going on, right? And so this happens a lot in the Gospels, this happens a lot, especially with the book of Revelation, is where I, when I've taught that before, is where I really use that illustration, that what you need is your little orphan Annie decoder ring. And for the New Testament, that's the Old Testament, right? You ever notice that when anybody doing a Bible reading plan this year? We're not doing one as a church this year. But right, if you're going through the, you know, there's like the Old Testament and then like the New Testament, right? Uh, There's a lot of stuff in there. And a lot of times what we want to do is use the things from the Old Testament to help us interpret what's going on in the New. And if you don't do that, you're missing out on some pretty major themes. And a lot of times it's not that, like, okay, we um, get it completely wrong. Like, this is a text where it's not that we'd get it completely wrong without reading through the Old Testament. But we'd be missing, like, a huge part of the story. And so today what we're going to do before we jump into Luke... We're going to um, read a big chunk from the book of Ezekiel. And then we're going to go into Luke. And then the Luke passage is going to have all this new... You're going to kind of see it, hopefully, with a whole new, uh, new eyes. Because um, it's a passage you've probably, if you've been around church at all, you've probably read, right? Uh, all right, so we're going to start in um, uh, Ezekiel 34. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So Ezekiel was a prophet during the time uh, of the exile, right? So the people of Israel got so bad that God put them on a 70-year, very serious timeout. And while they were gone, he sent them a few different prophets, right? He had like Daniel and uh, some of these guys, um, Zechariah, no, not Zechariah. Anyway, uh, Ezekiel was one of these guys. And his message is this part of this prophecy is specifically geared towards what he says, the shepherds of Israel. God tells him, go prophesy, not nice words to these shepherds, but bad words. Now, when he says the shepherds of Israel, he doesn't mean the guys in Israel who happen to actually be shepherds, right? This isn't go out and find the guys with the sheep. This is like a, a picture of the leaders, the kings, the priests, the um, you know the different judges and stuff that were in charge. So what's this message against the prophets of Israel? Prophesy and say to them, even the shepherds... Um, Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Uh, You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So these shepherds, these people that were in charge of the ancient people of Israel were supposed to, you know, the, the book of Deuteronomy and different parts of that talk about like what are these leaders supposed to do? What are they supposed to look like? and uh, they're supposed to be, you know, take care of the people, but instead what they do is they feed themselves, uh, you know, like um, they're, they're using the flock to benefit themselves instead of the other way around, like a shepherd is supposed to do, right? Um, I just watched uh, this HBO documentary about, uh, is it Tim and Tammy Faye Baker? You guys know them from back in the day? Um, and these televangelists from like the 80s and 90s um, with the guy that played Spider-Man was in it, anyway. It was a pretty good little documentary or not talking it wasn't a documentary it was a movie and um i'm tripping uh man it was so infuriating to watch it though these guys had this ministry uh where they you know they're just on tv and uh you know sort of talking about jesus but not really and raising like a ton of money and at the end of it he goes to prison for fraud um, because millions of dollars were missing right and it was, I was literally watching that, do, that I keep saying documentary, I'm, I'm tired, I lost an hour, uh, <laughs> I was watching that movie um, on HBO, whatever, Max or whatever, and um, in the middle of the night, you know, at one in the morning like I do, while I was writing this, and it was kind of funny, I, that was just a coincidence, and it really made me think of this, man, like, nothing has changed, right, is th- this is exactly what these guys were doing, they were just the ancient version of uh, Tim and Tammy Faye Baker, Him? Is that his name? Did I write that right? I think, anyway. Tim Baker? Yeah, yeah, Tim Baker. Um, So they're, they're, you know, basically screwing the people, taking all the money. Look what else happens. Verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, um, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts." My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So what these shepherds should have done, what these leaders should have done, there's a picture. You're supposed to strengthen the weak. You're supposed to heal and take care of the sick. You're supposed to bring back the strays, the people who have wandered. Basically, you're supposed to do for the people what shepherds do for sheep. You're supposed to take care of them. And uh, what did they do though, right? That's not what they did. They, they sort of flipped it. And they like I said, they used the sheep for their own personal gain. But here's another thing. Look at the picture here of the sheep that, that the Lord paints as he's talking through Ezekiel, right? The, the sheep are helpless without a shepherd. They're scattered. They're hunted by wild beasts. This is a picture of the spiritual state of Israel that led to the exile, right? These people are lost, They need the Lord. They're completely wandering. And instead of the shepherds going and saying, hey, this is the way to go. We're going this way. They just abused them. And uh, you know they were terrible at being shepherds of the people of God. And so therefore, verse 7, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. So God's message now is because you guys have Screwed this up so badly, I'm going to take away the, the, your, you know, your office as the shepherd or whatever. And that's basically what happened in the exile. But this, this phrase, right, that God is against you, is absolutely terrifying when you really think about it. Because think about how big God is, right? Like, you know, the end of the book of Job, if you were at the Ash Wednesday service with the other churches, I talked about this book of Job. And at the end of the book of Job, God doesn't even answer Job's question about why does suffering happen? He just comes to him, and he takes him on a tour of the universe. And he's like, these are the stars, and this is, you know, like, there's, the universe is so complicated, dude. You have no idea what you're talking about. And Job's answer is, oh, my gosh, you're so much bigger than I thought. I never should have questioned you. Or another spot where this happens is in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has the, Isaiah has the throne room vision. He's before the throne of God. And it says, like, the actual Hebrew is really weird, but what it says is he, um, he like, falls apart from the inside out when he, in his sin, is standing in the presence of a perfectly holy God. Um, this is the same thing Peter falls apart, you know. Depart from me when he tells Jesus, for I'm a sinful man, when he sees the divinity of Jesus with the, the catch of the fish and all that stuff. Um, but man, God is like, he's so big. Hearing this is terrifying. He's the creator of the world. Like the other day I was on a YouTube rabbit hole. You guys get on these too, you know, where I'm like, oh, let me Google, you know, this thing about how to fix my Bluetooth mouse. And by the end of it, you know, I'm watching two giraffes fight, you know, like uh, a mil- <laughs> Yeah, okay, so I was on one of these rabbit trails, and I came across this video about uh, black holes and uh, what happens when two black holes collide. And it was super interesting for a guy who didn't pass most of his science classes. Uh, but what they said in the video was this, the atom bomb. Um, that, we, that the U.S. used, the two atom bombs we used in World War II, took the mass of a, something that's about the size of a third of a dime and turned that into energy, and that basically destroyed a whole city. Right? A third of a dime, that's how much it took. And they said in the video, when two black holes collide, it's basically the same thing, but instead of the mass of a third of the dime, it's the mass of three of our suns. Like, that's how much energy and power gets released And so apparently some sort of a wave a while ago came through and they were able to measure from some black hole that exploded millions of years ago, you know, when two black holes collided. But man, just trying, like watching this guy on YouTube, trying to even explain like how much power happens when two black holes collide like that. And he basically was like, there's there's almost no way to actually picture like the size of an explosion like this, you know, that happens in space. And then I was thinking about it, the God who is talking to Ezekiel right here, He's the God that created the entire universe. He created those black holes. He created the mass that turns in... Like, the universe is enormous and complicated and wonderful. And I can't wait for the pictures from this new, uh, you know, telescope they just shot up there that are going to be coming out. Um, I can replace all my backgrounds on a lot of my stuff is, like, Hubble telescope pictures. So these new ones are going to be pretty great. That's the God who then says to these guys, the God who created all that, Dude, I'm pissed, and... You are not on my team anymore. That's like a, that's a pretty scary thing. And the reason it's, um, he's so serious about it is because God's heart is for the sheep. Like, do you see this? They did this to my sheep. They did, he says it a couple times. They did this to my sheep, right? If someone walked in here, stranger off the street, and let's just imagine this, right? Some guy walks in and he's just kind of, you know, looking around while we're doing the sermon or something, you know. And we would all be like, oh, who's this guy? You know, But we'd be polite. <laughs> and we wouldn't be like, hey, we're in the middle of church, man. Can you sit down or whatever? We would just let him wander around. Now imagine he wandered up here and then he punched me in the face. Okay? I'd be like pretty annoyed and confused, but also probably wouldn't be that mad about it. you know? Okay, now let's say the same thing happened. Guy wanders in, heads over to one of my kids and does the same thing. All of a sudden, you guys are going to see a whole different John, right? (laughs) Punches me in the face versus punches one of my kids in the face. That's what's going on here with God. He was pretty mad already, like, about what the people did to him, you know, and there's a lot of that in the prophets. But this is where he gets real mad at these leaders. This is what you did to my sheep. So we're seeing a whole different side of God. And so verse 11, for thus says, he keeps going, for thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out a flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So think about how amazing this is now. We just talked about how big God is. He created these black holes and created the whole universe. Now he specifically says, fine, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it myself. If you're not going to take care of my people... Like, I have called you to do, you wicked uh, leaders of Israel, I'm going to do it myself. That's amazing to think about that. Like, God thinks about us like that. Like, God, that's God's heart. Um, Tim Keller, you guys know the pastor in, um, uh, where is he, Manhattan. His wife has a story that's kind of cool. When she was a kid, she was a big C.S. Lewis fan, you know, and she wrote C.S. Lewis a letter. And then he wrote her back. And so she has like her, I think she still has like her C.S. Lewis letter. And um, her name's Kathy Keller. Kathy still has her C.S. Lewis letter. And uh, I think I've just heard Tim tell this story. I don't know. One of them told the story about using this illustration that it's kind of cool, if you think about it, when she was a kid. There was like a moment in time where C.S. Lewis, you know, their hero, was like thinking about her. Like took time out of his day, and for 30 minutes, he was just thinking about Kathy Keller, this kid in New York or wherever they were from. No, she was from North Carolina or something. And then I I think this is from a sermon Tim did where he goes, but think about it, how much more amazing is it? That's just some dude, right? That's just C.S. Lewis. I mean, yeah, he wrote some books, but he's still just a guy. You know what I mean? Think about how awesome it is when you read passages where God goes, hey, you're my sheep, and I think about you all the time. And by the way, I created the whole universe and everything in it, and I'm pretty great. And, And... And when something bad happens to you from spiritual leadership that's gone awry, like I'm mad about it. And so God says specifically now, I'm going to do it. These are my sheep. Fine, if you're not going to do it, I will. And then he keeps going, verse 13. So how is he going to do it? I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I'll bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places in their country. So this, this is a picture here. I'm um, sorry, of the Lord talking about, I've sent you all into exile, and now I'm going to gather you back, which is exactly what happens. Um, and verse 14, I'll feed them with the good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down with the good, uh, the good, in good grazing land, and on rich pasture shall they feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So he says, I'll, I will take them... I'll feed them from the good pasture, which is like, you know, the ancient version of I will take them to dinner at the house of prime rib. And I don't even have to get a reservation three months in advance, you know, like everybody else does. Right. This is like the best, you know, the the best of the food. I'm going to take care of them. Verse 16. I will I will seek out the lost and I will bring back the straight and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will rejoice. Uh Oh, no, I'm just kidding fat, I will rejoice. Some of us out there, COVID. Just kidding. Uh, I will feed them in justice. So basically, God takes the list of everything he just told them you guys weren't doing. This is the stuff you're supposed to do, and you didn't do it. So he lists it again. Fine, I'm going to do all of this stuff. And then skipping down to verse 23, the end of the passage here. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, um, sorry, I am the Lord, I have spoken. So the passage ends like this. In the future, I'm going to send them a shepherd who's going to be, so he says, my servant David. The thing is, at this point, David has been dead for like 400 years. Or something, maybe a little more than 400 years. It's been a while, right? 500 years, maybe. So when he says, I'm going to send them David, he doesn't mean David. He means somebody like David. I'm going to send them a shepherd, just like David. And he's going to do all these wonderful things. You know, he's he's going to be the shepherd that these guys never were. Okay, so that's the passage. Everybody after the exile knew the book of Ezekiel. And they all would have known this passage. But as we fast forward now to the times of Jesus, right? So the exile happened in 586 BC. The people started coming back in 516 BC. And over a couple of waves, people came back. So by about 500 years before Jesus, the people were sort of settled back in the land of Israel. So 500 years now have gone by since Ezekiel wrote these words to Jesus being on the scene. And Jesus shows up. And he looks around at the shepherds of Israel like we've been going through the book of Luke verse by verse together. And we've been reading a lot about these guys and Jesus shows up and everything is basically exactly like it was in the time of Israel. Right. They should have known this prophecy. They should have known Jesus was coming, but they didn't. So let's read. That's our context. Right. That's our orphan Annie decoder ring. Now let's jump and read our actual passage here. Let's it's kind of a shorter passage this week. But um, 15 one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. So a lot of times when you read that phrase in the Gospels, it's almost synonyms, right? Tax collectors and sinners. If you were a tax collector, it was assumed that you were awful, right? So the tax collectors, real quick, if you don't know about this, they, the Romans were in charge of the land of Israel, and they collected taxes. And I mean, it's really funny, too, by the way, when you read about like how mad people were about taxes and stuff the percentage that they paid compared to what anything modern countries pay was like way lower. But anyway, so they had these taxes and these tax collectors, the way it would work is they were, the Romans would tell a tax collector, hey, I need you to go to Stephen's house and Stephen owes me a hundred bucks, right? So just bring me a hundred bucks from Stephen. So the tax collector would go to Stephen and he would say, hey, you owe 250 bucks. And then Stephen would give 250. The tax collector would keep 150 and then give a hundred to Rome. But what they used was, um, was, local people who knew everybody. So these were like traitors to their own community, right? This is like in, the, in World War II, you know, the Jewish folks in the ghettos in Poland who signed up to be, um, you know, Gestapo police assistants, you know? Like after the war, it did not go well for those guys. It was kind of the same thing, right? This is how people thought of them. And um, sinners is just a word for, you know, these are people who in the eyes of the religious elites had decided these guys are wicked and they're sinners. Right. So these are the people, though, that were drawn to Jesus. Again, we need to stop and ask why. Why were these people specifically drawn to Jesus? Why did Jesus have a tax collector as one of his 12 disciples? Right. You remember if, if you were here when we read that passage. I, uh, I've always wondered about this, and I can't wait to be dead, because I'm going to ask a lot of questions from these disciples and stuff. you know. But one of them is, the first night that Matthew, the tax collector, sat down at the campfire with Peter the hothead fisherman who probably had his taxes collected by Matthew. Like, what did they talk about that first night at dinner? You know, that was probably the most uncomfortable campfire situation in the history of the world, and to be a fly on the wall, you know. Well, someday I'll just ask them about it, and they'll laugh, and they'll tell me how horribly it went, you know, and the pride inside. What's that? Okay, yeah, there you go, yeah. Um, So these kind of people, though, were attracted to Jesus because the teaching of these shepherds, these religious elites, They were burdensome teachings, right? Jesus talks about that. You guys are heaping burdens on people. And then somebody comes along who genuinely loves you, right? You spend your whole life being told you're horrible by the people whose society goes, those are the people that we should all be like. And those people tell you, you're awful. You suck. You'll never measure up. And even if you turn your life around now, it doesn't care. We're still going to take your past, and we're going to throw it in your face. And then finally, some guy comes along, and he's nice, and he's loving. And of course... He's super popular because this just wasn't a thing that people did back then. Um, You know who this reminds me of is Mr. Rogers, right? You guys all grew up watching Mr. Rogers, maybe. Um, You know, there's movies now about how great Mr. You know, there was like a documentary, wasn't there, about Mr. Rogers' life. And didn't Tom Hanks play Mr. Rogers? Did I see that one? I don't remember. Anyway, the point is Mr. Rogers was, what was his whole shtick? I'm gonna be nice. Yeah, you know, and did you know, actually, he was a Presbyterian minister? Um, he went to a seminary with R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite, you know, theologian guys. They were classmates together, and they knew each other pretty well. Um, <clears throat> but he's one of the people in our modern times that we can say that we've seen this happen, where he's just so nice that everybody likes him. That's kind of what happened with Jesus, right? He was just nice to people, and he gave them truth, but packaged in a way that was freeing, not not burdensome. And so... Jesus is hanging out with all sorts of people and um, there's actually do you remember what we read a couple years ago last year in the summer we read um, the art of neighboring and one of the things they point out in that book is Jesus gets accused of a lot of things he didn't do this is like the one he did they're like you eat with tax collectors and sinners Jesus's answer wasn't oh no no I never did that before his answer was yeah (laughs) all the time actually and uh, you're lucky I eat with sinners because otherwise I couldn't have you over for dinner. That's what he should have said. All right, verse 2. So the Pharisees and the scribes, right, they grumbled and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, right? These are the current shepherds, just like in Ezekiel's time. Um, the, these Pharisees, the Pharisees were like a religious group. The scribes were like the religious lawyers. A lot of the scribes were also Pharisees. It's kind of complicated. The point is these were the new shepherds. These were the guys in charge. If anybody should have understood the way that the upside-down kingdom of God works, it was these guys. These guys' job was literally to sit around, to study Ezekiel chapter 34, and then to tell everybody about it, right? But that's not what they did, right? They knew the prophets. They knew the law. They knew those last two verses of Ezekiel 34 that we read, where it says, I'm going to send you a new shepherd who's going to actually take care of the sheep. And when the new shepherd shows up and does the very things that Ezekiel said he was going to do, what do these guys do? They get pissed and they grumble. Luke uses that word. um, The Pharisees and scribes grumbled. He uses that on purpose because what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to remind you. You guys know the um, Septuagint? Have I talked about this before? It was like an Old Testament Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? And so he uses this word because this is the word from the Septuagint, which is a Bible a lot of these guys would have read, um, that is specifically used of the people in the Old Testament wandering through the desert, grumbling about the things that God is doing for them, right? And so this word is very, he uses it specifically, right? Um, Right, you know the story. God, they're like, oh man, we should have never left Egypt. We had good food there. Or, you know, we had more food there. So God says, all right, here's a bunch of free food every day, as much as you can eat in a day but I'm going to give you it every day. And so they go and they eat it for a while, and they're like, oh, this sucks. It's not even as good as the food we had before. So then Jesus is like, or, you know, God's like, here's some meat. And then they grumble about that. And then they're like, oh, it's hot out here, and there's not enough water, and this walk is taking forever. You know, if you've ever been at the zoo with children, this is what happened, right? Just walking around the zoo with kids complaining about everything. And you're like, can you just shut up and look at the gorilla, man? You know, um, that's kind of, that's the Old Testament, right? <laughs> I just recap the whole Pentateuch for you there. Um, so uh, Luke uses this word on purpose because he wants to remind the people of their history. Not only have they forgotten Luke 34, they've forgotten they're acting like the spoiled brats in the wilderness, the generation that wasn't allowed to inherit the promised land. And um, all right, let's keep going. So Jesus, he tells them this. Uh, oh Wait, let me just say this. He tells them a parable. So in the, wor- in the Greek here, the word parable is singular, but actually... He tells them three parables with one meaning, right? So it's three stories kind of in one teaching session. And we're, like we always do, we're going to do it in four sermons. No, three sermons, right? So um, the first parable here is the story of um, the, the, the lost sheep. Then there's the story of the lost coin. And the third one is the prodigal son story, which is the lost son's Two sons that are lost, one more than the other, and we'll talk about that, right? So let's look at this, um, this parable here. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? Go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So um, he starts by talking about shepherds, which is fitting, right? This is exactly what Ezekiel was talking about. And uh, Keller, who preached a sermon on this passage, um, I'll just read this to you. I actually wrote it out here. Um, I'm going to steal this from Tim. Here we go. Uh, he says, here are the words of a pastor. So he's quoting some other pastor. Before he went to the ministry, he was a shepherd. Um, here's what he says. He understands what it means. He says something like, a sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or a dog never does. So even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes, rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it on the ground, tie up its legs, uh, and throw it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. And this teaches, uh, this teaches us, like sheep, that we need to be rescued and that we constantly need to be rescued. So this is the genius part of what Keller just did. He, he, and he goes on to explain this in the sermon. Um, he compares the lost sheep to a lost dog or cat. So if you lose a dog and the dog you know, wanders off in the neighborhood or whatever, I assume this sometimes happens with dogs. I've never had a dog, right? But you go to the dog and you find it in the park and you say, come here, boy. The dog will run over to you probably. And you're like, let's go home and the dog will follow you home. Sheep are stupid. You walk over to sheep and you're like, come here, boy. You're like, Who are you? I've never seen you before in my life, even though I see you every day, right? And you're like, follow me home. It's not gonna happen, right? You gotta literally tie it up and throw it over your shoulders and drag it home. And what Keller goes on to explain and this is one of the genius, like, little illustrations that why we all love Tim Keller, I think. He goes, everybody reads passages like this, and they think they're lost like a dog. We all think we're dogs. We think, well, I'm not as stupid as a sheep. If I get lost, I just need, I need a little bit of help. I need somebody to kind of point me back to the way home. And then I'll figure the rest out by myself. He goes, that's not the biblical picture of being lost in sin. The biblical picture of being lost in sin is stuff like this. Like you're dead and you need somebody to go bring you back to life. Like you need God to put flesh on these dead bones, right? That's Ezekiel 2. Today's Ezekiel Sunday. Um, Or you need, like you're the lost sheep. You need somebody to come over and drag you back into salvation. You need somebody with that kind of dedication. And that's what is pictured here um, is this shepherd is gonna go out and he's gonna find this lost sheep. Um, There's a part here where, and says, won't he leave the 99? It's funny how in our culture, I don't know, we just read things with these Western eyes, you know. Uh, a lot of the commentators are like, this is how much he loves that one sheep. He's going to leave the other 99 and risk it just to save the one. And theologically, it doesn't make any sense. But also, anybody in the first century that heard this would have assumed there were other shepherds too. He's just going to, okay, you guys watch these guys. I'm going to go get the one that's lost. The point is not the 99. The point is he's going to find the one, right? Um, you don't want to lose that one sheep because he treasures it. Um, verse 5, and when he f- has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Um, there's another guy who's a, who wrote a book about, uh, the book of Luke, Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes, he says this, um, it's significant that the earliest statuary, statue from the Western church, so this is the oldest statue we have as believers, you know, like West, Christian art sort of stuff, comes from the third century, and it's a statue of the good shepherd bearing the recovered lamb on his shoulders. Um, it's thought to have first come from the catacombs where the early church in Rome met, underground, um, and buried people and that sort of stuff. This statue can be seen at this museum. I don't know how to say that. Lateran, I don't know. Museum in Rome. But that's cool, right? This is the picture that the early church really grabbed onto was this picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. And that's the statue right there I went on. Turns out you can find pictures of things on the internet now. It's pretty great. And so <laughs> I found this picture, right? This is what the church uh, latched onto is this this shepherd who goes and he rescues the sheep. And in this... Uh, in this verse here, look at what he does. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheet that was lost. He rejoices. The other day I lost my iPad. Sad, right? What happened was it was in my laptop bag after the Ash Wednesday service, and I threw my laptop bag into my van, and it slid underneath one of the seats and then fell down between the cracks, you know? <laughs> and it was off, so the find my iPad thing was not on. And I knew the iPad was off, and I was like, I'm never gonna find this iPad. It's like, maybe it fell out, so I I ended up finding it. And when I found it, you know what I was feeling? Relief. That's it, that's as far as it went, right? I wasn't rejoicing. (laughs) Why, because me and that iPad, this is a one-way relationship. I have that iPad, and I use it for stuff, and it belongs to me, and do I love it? Not really, it's a tool, you know what I mean? uh there's no love there right the assumption here is uh, the shepherd is rejoicing when he finds this sheep that's a pretty big like statement to yeah like joy and then what he does is he shares in that joy so what else i didn't do when i found my ipad was i didn't throw an ipad found party Mm -hmm. and invite you guys all over and we put the ipad on a little thing and we all looked at it and we ate cake and cookies, and, you know, that's not what we did. I just, oh, okay, there it is, and I threw it in my bag, because, again, I don't love my iPad, right? Now, a lot of times, uh, I won't get into that. I'll just keep going. <laughs> the, the contrast here with this joy and this party, this is interesting. The sheep is lost, and now it's found. The neighborhood comes together for a party. There's a contrast here with the very beginning of this chapter. What happened at the beginning of the chapter? The grumbling of the Pharisees. Right. Luke wants you to specifically see one of these groups is happy and excited and one is miserable and grumbling over the same lost sheep. Right. That has now been found. And so Jesus doesn't always explain a parable. Sometimes he just lets it sit and the disciples go to him and they go, uh, what? Was that me you're talking about there, Jesus? You know, and Jesus is like, yeah, dummy, I was talking about you. But a lot of times he explains a parable. And when he specifically explains a parable, we need to take it pretty seriously. And he does that here. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who need no repentance. So there was a common saying among first century Jewish folks that went like this. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That was like a common thing that, you know, that people would say. Right? As God destroys people, he's going to feel joy. Jesus takes this very common saying and he just completely flips it. You've got it wrong. The joy doesn't come from, and Jesus never takes away the judgment of God. He never diminishes the judgment of God. He talks about it a lot because it's serious. But what he never says is God takes joy in punishing sinners. What he says is God takes joy when sinners repent. And what, when it happens, there's this, great, there's this great party in heaven. right? There'll be more joy in heaven. I'm looking around. Was anybody here in 2010? Just me. You guys were here. Okay, so most of you guys are newbies. Right, okay, so let me tell you then, because you don't remember. I was going to say, do you guys remember when we won a World Series in 2010? And Okay, so you don't remember. But me and Melissa jumped on our scooter. That was before motorcycles. We just had a scooter then. We jumped on the scooter. We rode around the city. There were people sitting. Remember, we saw one guy sitting in his sunroof with his legs down, driving down the street, holding his baby up like this to scream at the crowd. They were shooting fireworks. They were lighting toilet paper, throwing it over the thing, you know. Uh, We went down to the ballpark, and we had all our giant, you know, like we had our helmet and everything on, but, um, you know, we were riding around, and Melissa was high-fiving people. Everybody was, like, stopping and running up to the scooter and high-fiving, and she, like, tore something. It still hurts, right? Like, I mean, (laughs) she still has problems with her shoulder from... This is how much of a party we had, right? Is literally, she's still injured from it, you know, 12 years later. Um, and we went down to the ballpark and they were shooting champagne and people were, I mean, we. I grew up a huge Giants fan here in the city, thinking I'm never gonna get to see a World Series. And we finally won a World Series. And I mean, we burned the city, I didn't. But I mean, they flipping buses. That guy went to jail, right? He was smashing the bus with the thing and they lit a bus on fire. Like, the the amount of joy, I guess that's joy, I don't know. Like, that happened in the city. When I think of a big, giant, just people, uh, unrestrained, like, just happiness, I think of 2010, right? High-fiving strangers and holding babies outside of cars. Maybe not the most responsible thing. But this is what happens every time a sinner comes to faith and turns to God in repentance. Heaven goes crazy. Not you, heaven. The place heaven. Goes crazy like 2010 World Series. They're high-fiving. They're tearing uh, whatever ligaments in shoulders, right? They're excited. They're lighting toilet paper on fire and throwing it over the power lines. And so Jesus says, this is what happens in heaven when a sinner repents. It doesn't happen when there's a righteous person that doesn't need repentance. So this we don't want to push too far, right? Because Romans tells us, right, that there's, uh, right, uh, nobody's righteous. So what does Jesus mean here? We've got to interpret this through the rest of the New Testament. But basically, um, he, he's not saying there are people who don't need to repent. He's saying there are people who think they don't need to repent. And those people are not being celebrated in heaven, right? So there, there's a contrast here. The grumbling Pharisees who think they're better than everybody, God says that brings no joy into heaven. Then there's the, the sinner who spent his whole life, the tax collector, ripping off his own people and being a total punk. And then he turns to God in repentance and heaven goes 2010 World Series kind of a party. So that's the first parable. When the sheep comes back, you know, they find the sheep. The second one is the exact same thing, just even shorter. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So uh, when it says ten silver coins is kind of a weird English translation. The word is actually drachmas, drachmas, something like that, drachylmas. Um, It was a day's wages, right? So you think like 10 days worth of work. She loses one of these coins. And she probably has, the idea is, has a dirt floor. And she dropped the coin somewhere. And she doesn't know where. And her floor is all dirt. And it's somewhere under the dirt. And they don't have metal detectors. I don't know if you heard that. They didn't have metal detectors in the first century. And so what she does, she lights a lamp. She starts sweeping the floor, hoping to find this coin. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, For I have found the coin that I had lost. Okay, so this is funny. One guy, one commentator writing about this told a story of he was teaching this in Sunday school one time. And some kid raises his hand and he goes, this lady's an idiot. And the Sunday school teacher goes, explain, what do you mean? Well, a party is going to cost more than the coin, (laughs) right? Did she just spend more on the party than what she had lost in the first place? And the Sunday school teacher has like, yeah, I never really thought of that, but that's kind of the point, <laughs> right? The, the joy, that's how much joy comes from finding the lost, right? And again, uh, Jesus explains the parable. Just so I tell you, there is more joy, it's a little bit different here, before the angels of God. So now we know specifically these angels are partying in heaven. of uh, The angels of God over one sinner who repents, right? So the repetition teaches us the same exact lesson. So we have these two stories, we have the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Um, Chris from uh, First Prez is going to teach for us next week. So uh, show up, you know. Um, <laughs> and then the week after, we're going to do two weeks in the prodigal son story. But uh, the the point here that we see, we see is that people are lost. Right? Just like the sheep. The people around you are lost. At one point, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, or before you were a follower of Jesus, you were lost. And until you really understand the depths of how lost you were the gospel is not truly going to make sense you're not going to see the sheer beauty of the gospel like keller said in his sermon as long as you think you're a dog out there that's just wandering you're not going to see the beauty it is that god came and sought you out that jesus came and acted like the shepherd right and that's the point of these parables. This all The Old Testament, right? The part of Ezekiel is explaining there's, we're lost sheep, and what we need is the true and perfect shepherd. We don't need Pharisees and scribes and prophets and different people to be our leaders. We needed the, the one true shepherd. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is that perfect shepherd who comes looking. There's a story of the most famous shepherd in the Bible, right? David, the shepherd boy who became the king. And if you remember at the beginning of the, the David and Goliath story, he shows up, and they're like, you can't fight Goliath. You're just this punk kid, you know? And he goes, well, uh, one time I was out there being a shepherd, you know, and I killed this bear and this lion. That's a kind of a cool story if you think about it. He's out there with a slingshot and a Dennis the Menace style, and a lion shows up and is like, I'm going to eat your sheep. You know what I would do? Here you go, man. Barbecue sauce is in the fridge. Right? I'm out. <laughs> I'm not dying for this sheep. David, you know, kills the lion or whatever. Okay, that's a kind of a cool story. And when you look at the life of David pointing to Jesus, it it makes sense, right? There's a connection there. But the difference is Jesus protects his sheep, right? He doesn't kill the lion. In the Jesus story, the lion kills him, right? Jesus is the perfect shepherd to the level that he is willing to lay down his life. He says that, I lay down my life for my sheep, right? Gathering his sheep, bringing the lost back for Jesus cost him the ultimate price. And that's how precious you are to him. If you were the only lost sheep in the entire world, he would have come down and done the exact same thing. And he would have done it for you. Jesus looked through the tunnels of history, and he looked at you, and he goes, I want that one. I'll I'll die for them. I'll die for him. I'll die for her. The God who created the universe, right? The black hole God, right? The guy who created these two black holes that blew up and it's like, almost impossible to fathom who who just spoke a word and that that came into existence right that's the god who is the perfect shepherd and has come back to seek us so two quick application points the first is this we should leave passages like this just blown away by how much christ loves us that's the first thing right we're reading luke at the porch and we chose luke we've been in it forever now because what I, what I say almost every week is we want to look at the gospel of Luke and tell Jesus, show me who you really are. Not all these preconceived notions and stuff I got from the flannel board at VBS when I was a kid or from if you went to church in the 90s, I guess. Um, or, <clears throat> um, you know, all this other stuff, this baggage that I bring onto it. But j- Lord, just show me who you are. And as we read it, this is who Jesus is. Um, Luke 19 says this. No, oh, wait, I don't have a for this. Luke 19, 10. We'll get to this later on in a couple of years. Um, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When Jesus says the entire point of me coming was not to heal, was not to feed 5,000, wasn't even to teach. The point of his coming was to seek and to save the lost, to go out and to find the lost sheep, to pick them up and to carry them back into the fold. Right? That's the whole point of the story. A lot of times we have this very misguided picture of the Lord, that he's just angry all the time because we had parents like that maybe or a school teacher or something. Um, There's a great book. Oh, I should have brought him today. Crossway gave me 50 of them. I only wanted like five and they sent me a box of 50. So I have 50 of these books. So if you want one, I'll bring some next week too. Um, But it's called Gentle and Lowly. And this is the whole point of the book is like, look at the heart of Christ and just sit there and be amazed, right? Because this is who he is at his core, The second point of application, this is how we'll end, is share in the joy as you live missionally, right? Just share in the joy. As you see people, you know, make steps in faith, party like it's uh, 2010, right? Is that the song, right? Party like, we'll write a new song. Party like it's 2010. Um, At the porch, we do this thing, we call it the Pabst Blue Ribbon Discipleship or Outreach Pathway. I don't know what pathway, something pathway, and it, we named it after the crappy hipster beer that everybody drinks at Dolores Park. If you go on a Sunday afternoon, right, you'll see all the hipsters with their boxes of PBR. And I'm not a big beer guy, but even I tried that beer and I was like, boy, I can tell this tastes like... A... Anyway, um, so if you're a PBR fan, sorry. But, so PABST is our acronym. We pray for people. We ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We share our personal stories with them, and then we talk to them about the gospel. And this happens kind of all at the same time, right? The Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway. But this is one of the reasons why this is so important. Because if you're going through the Christian life, and you're not engaging with your people around you in a sort of a missional way, if you're not looking for the kingdom of God, and you're not looking for outreach and that sort of stuff, you're missing a huge part of joy that God has offered you. Because there's literally nothing better than seeing people repent and turn to Christ, to seeing the, the weight lifted off of people's lives, to watch this happen. And like I prayed earlier, you know, that us pastors, we always kind of joke that, you know, San Francisco is like concrete soil. It's hard to, you know, this is not a place where people are constantly coming to faith. But in one sense, that makes it even sweeter when it does happen. And this is why we spend, you know, I say we we're going to spend I want to spend 90% of our energy as a church doing that, not Sunday mornings, not Wednesday, you know, or whatever, like engaging with people missionally. And this is one of the reasons, because if we're not doing this, I mean, this is a completely selfish thing, but it's true. When that happens, we experience this joy that we're not going to get from anywhere else. And it's cool, right? To see the shepherd bringing sheep back, to see the Lord working. And so that's what I want to define a, like, I want us to define ourselves as a church, as the church that is so obsessed with that, that, you know, we're having, we're partying with heaven when it happens, you know, we're, we're driving the scooter around, high-fiving people and, um, you know, enjoying the kingdom of God in a way that just brings this sort of sheer joy. And then as we look at Jesus, the true shepherd, and um, are just blown away by his heart and his love that we don't deserve at all. Amen? All right, let's pray.